So we're going to be back in James this morning, and this is God's word for us today. This is James chapter 1, starting in verse 19. My dear brothers and sisters, understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like someone looking at his reflection, his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what a kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who works, this person will be blessed in what he does. Now that's a text. So, my dear brothers and sisters, understand this, that everyone, 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 no exceptions, you and me included, ought to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. There's a part of me that wants to jump straight ahead to the slow to speak part, but I appreciate that James begins with a positive not a negative action. If I were to tell you, don't think of pink elephants, of course, the very first thing you will think of is a bunch of sunburned, poor, suffering behemoths. But if I told you, think of walking trees, not pink elephants, your mind would be able to successfully reject the elephant picture because it had something else to focus on. This proves true with our discipleship as well. Negative instructions are nearly always paired with positive actions. Jesus doesn't simply call us to not say, hold on to grudges. He calls us to actively forgive. Because it's through positive action that we are empowered to honor that negative prohibition. I really think this is the great secret for those who uh, battle lust, right? You can't just focus on don't lust, don't lust, don't lust. You need a positive assignment to focus your attention and energies on, something to occupy the bandwidth that is freed up by the absence of the vice. You also need like a new rhythm, uh, when a transformative to response that displaces your previous destructive spiral. That's why I love, and there's a liturgy book called Every Moment Holy. They train folks to pray this prayer upon seeing a beautiful person. It goes like this. Lord, I praise you for the divine beauty reflected in the form of this person. Now train my heart so that my response to their beauty would not be twisted downward into envy or desire but instead would be directed upward in worship of you, their creator, as was your intention for all such beauty before the breaking of the world. So I say all this to to 
clue us in on this fact. Before James ever calls us to control our speech or our anger, he invites us to cultivate this positive thing, generous listening. And in this, as is in everything, Jesus is our ultimate example. Among all who've ever walked the earth, Jesus probably more than anyone had things that were worth saying, things that we desperately needed to hear. But notice that even he was slow to speak and eager to listen. See, real relationships require careful attention to the perspective of others. And Jesus not only came to seek and save the lost, but also to be in a restored relationship with people as their good shepherd. So realize that for almost the first 30 years of his earthly life, Jesus primarily listened. He opened his ears and his heart and his life to others. He tarried with people and he sought to know them, to discover their fears and their hopes and their aspirations. And even when he gets into his public career, he's constantly pausing to ask questions and to listen. What do you want me to do for you? Do you want to get well? Who do you say that I am? And he actually cared about their answers, not just what he would say in response. So Jesus, the one who has more and better things to say than all of us, was quick to listen. But now things get fun. Everyone should be slow to speak. Gives me a chance to share one of my favorite proverbs, which is this. Even a fool is considered wise when he keeps silent. Discerning when he seals his lips. Or as Abraham Lincoln uh, humorously paraphrased it, he says it's better to keep your mouth shut and appear stupid than open it and remove all doubt. James here is actually picking up on last week's theme because it is our, uh, our deceptive hearts, it's our disordered desires that are kind of those causal agents behind our uncontrolled tongues. They create the fuel that fires our rash speech. James surely remembers his brother's teaching on this matter. Jesus informed us in the Gospel of Luke, he said this, a good person produces good out of the good stored up in his heart. An evil person produces evil out of the evil stored up in his heart. For from his mouth speaks the overflow of the heart. I find this insightful and convicting. Too often we think our words are ephemeral, they're superficial. Words are wind, baby. I didn't mean it. It's not what I, it doesn't reflect what I believe deep down. I, I was just, it's just hot air. I'm just blowing off some steam. Jesus calls BS on that because he sees our heart. We think we just need like a governor on our mouth because our words can get a bit wild and wonky sometimes. We pray with David, Lord, set a guard on my mouth. Keep watch on the doors of my lips. 
But I think Jesus would direct us to another of David's prayers, which is from Psalm 51.10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. You don't need more effective regulation. You need a heart transplant. You need God to renew and make right what's on the inside so that what bubbles up is good and kind and a blessing to all who hear. This is why I think James Link's slow to speak was slow to anger because hasty speech comes from hostile hearts. Proverbs 17.27, right before my favorite proverb, says, the one who has knowledge restrains his words. And the one who keeps a cool head is a person of understanding. Wisdom and restraint, both verbal and emotional, seem to go hand in hand. Yet we struggle against this concept of controlling our emotions. In our kind of modern understandings, feelings are our unconscious or pre-conscious There's something we experience, not something we direct or influence. For us, they're all kind of tied up in our internal wiring, our personality, our cultural upbringing. Hey, I'm just wound a little tight. Okay, yeah, I'm I'm loud and I'm passionate, I'm expressive, that's who I am. It's It's just my fiery Latin blood. While all of those things are true about me, I remind myself my emotions are data, not directives. And to some extent, not entirely, but to some extent, my feelings are decisions, not my destiny. Allow me to quote from biblical scholar Douglas Moo, who's been a companion with us on this journey. He writes this, Psychologists will sometimes claim that emotions, since they are a natural product of the personality, cannot truly be controlled, only suppressed or ignored. But James's exhortation here and many other similar biblical exhortations presume differently. Emotions are the products of the entire person. And by God's grace and the work of the Spirit, the person can be transformed so as to bring emotions in line with God's Word and will. So translation, partnering with the Holy Spirit And depending on the power of the Gospel's work in our lives, our emotional reactions can be changed. And they can be brought into conformity with Christ. Because that's what we're aiming for. Christ-likeness. For the person of Christ, the character of Christ to be formed in us. And this is true for you. Your emotional reactions can be transformed. It's also true for your Christian brother or sister who drives you nuts and you think is doomed to repeat their patterns, right? It's true for you, it's true for them. And James is going to invite us to do just that, to partner with the Spirit, to embrace the Gospel's work in our lives. But first, he's going to explain to us why we should not want to fuel and give vent to our anger. He says in verse 20, for human anger does not, let me get this right, accomplish God's righteousness. First, I think we're just wrong-headed on this issue. 
My flesh says if I give vent to my anger, I will feel better. Expressing it will give me catharsis. It will create this sense of release. And my anger will just burn itself out. Sure, some folks might get their eyebrows singed, but I'm only human after all, and everyone will recover quickly. That's not true. Yes, love covers a multitude of sins for which I am incredibly grateful, but playing with anger is like playing with anger, playing with harsh, cutting speech. It's like playing with hellfire. Giving it oxygen doesn't extinguish anger's fire. It feeds it, and it sparks these glowing embers even deeper in your own soul. I was thinking about this a lot this week, and I think this is a fitting analogy, though I confess, buckle in, it is a gross one. (laughs) Venting anger and frustration on someone is like popping a pimple. It feels good in the moment, it's disgusting to witness, and it's ultimately dangerous. So, do you know why you don't pop pimples? Because popping a pimple breaks your skin and it leaves a vulnerability, a gap in your body's natural defenses. And both the yuck you're trying to expel and even nastier, more destructive bacteria can now slip behind the barrier and infect the core of your body. Now, there are times where it is wonderful to be married to a nurse and to have friends who are nurses There are also times where it is terrible and terrifying. (laughs) So I remember one time we used to live with our best friends, the Heralds, and uh, Brianna's best friend Katie was also a nurse, and they would kind of debrief their days at the end of the day. And I remember one time someone was saying about how someone popped a pimple on their thigh and then got an antibiotic-resistant flesh-eating bacteria And then they were going to end up losing the leg because of that. That's a gulp right there. Let me tell you, since that moment, I have always thought twice about this whole concept. I didn't realize the stakes were so high. And I would contend that the same is true when it comes to unleashing your anger. It feels good but it's disgusting and traumatizing to those who witness it. And what's worse, it lowers your defenses. It allows nasty things to take root and residence in your character, and it infects the core of who you are. The second thing about human anger, James tells us, is that it is ineffective in accomplishing God's purposes. It's a false guide that is incapable of leading us into Christ's will or Christ's way. But boy, is it alluring. It makes incredible promises, but they are lies. Let me give you two illustrations. The first comes from church history. How many of you know the name Martin Luther? Raise your hand. So Martin Luther famously, he's this German monk, he's this Christian reformer. He nails his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church in Germany, protesting the many abuses of the medieval Catholic Church. And his actions almost single-handedly 
launch the Protestant Reformation, changing our world forever. Now, I deeply appreciate Luther and his ministry, but that brother struggled with anger. In his younger years, he regularly confessed to friends that ungodly anger was his most besetting sin. It was his most persistent brokenness, the thing that he regularly took to the Lord in prayer. Now, Luther took great risks. He exercised incredible courage. He proclaimed Christ with beautiful faithfulness for many, many years. And I am grateful for the many ways in which he built up God's church. But Luther eventually changed his perspective on his anger. In his older years, he came to embrace it, believing it to be a gift. I remember one of his later letters, I was reading it in seminary, and I was stunned when I stumbled upon this troubling passage. Luther wrote this, I never work better than when I am inspired by anger. For when I am angry, I can write and pray and preach well, for then my whole temperament is quickened, my understanding sharpened, and all mundane vexations and temptations depart. Eventually, Luther went looking for his anger, and when he found it, he would stoke it until he worked himself up into a tizzy and the words just came blasting out of him. And in that state, he wrote with passion and with eloquence and at great speed, and he was thrilled about how many of his deep convictions could get down onto paper before the Lord took him home. Except Luther's later writings were poison. He railed against the Jews for rejecting their Messiah, breathing life into an ugly and demonic spirit of anti-Semitism among God's people. He fiercely combated his fellow reformers, decrying minor differences in doctrine or practice as just vile heresies and betrayals. And his combative spirit set the table for the vicious religious wars that would engulf Europe for the next hundred years. Luther should have heeded the words of his least favorite New Testament book, the book of James, for human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Well, calling out Luther, now I want to call out myself. I know for me, my tongue is most untamed and my frustration bubbles over most when my kids are fighting amongst themselves. When they're being hurtful to one another, either with their words or their actions, more than anything else, that gets my goat. And counterintuitively, I respond by getting loud, harsh, and angry. As though if my anger and my, some sort of display of power can reassert control once again over my household and make my kids love each other and show kindness to one another right now. As one scholar paraphrases James, human anger is not a legitimate instrument for affecting those right relationships God desires for creatures. I can fume and yell, but anger and unrestrained speech are flawed and ineffective tools. And they inflict wounds on both the wielder 
and anyone caught up in the vicinity, right? Jesus says, no, no, trust my wisdom. That way will not work. A gentle answer turns away anger, but a harsh word stirs up wrath. Fathers, don't exasperate your children so that they won't become discouraged. Trust my wisdom. Yes, anger may make you feel like a big man, a strong leader, an authority in your home. It might have been what was modeled for you as a child, but let me teach you my way. Model your leadership on my leadership. And now you might protest, what about righteous anger? Remember that time Jesus made a whip of cords and chased vendors and money changers out of the temple courts, huh? That might just be what my office needs. Just take off the belt and impose order until folks get in line. You can't make an omelet without cracking a few eggs. (laughs) Except Jesus calls us not to make omelets, but to make disciples. And also be careful baptizing your anger and calling it God's. Heed the cautionary tale of Martin Luther. It does not end well. And before you adopt Jesus in the temple as your political agenda, realize the context of that action. In that moment, Jesus is acting in his triple role as king, priest, and prophet. And his demonstration serves as a symbolic display of judgment and rebuke. It's a bit of powerful and dramatic theater a meaningful protest to reveal and expose the waywardness of Israel's leaders. It's a unique situation in which a unique message was proclaimed by a unique messenger. And this wasn't Jesus' standard mode of operating. Indeed, He followed up His actions in the temple courts not by uh, loudly asserting control and doing these angry denunciations of the leaders. He followed up the uh, scene in the temple by willingly laying down his life for that same wayward people. So realize that your home, your office, your, our country, it's not ancient Israel. You aren't the rightful king, the purified priest, the long-promised prophet. Jesus doesn't call you and me to pick up our our whips and our bullhorns. He calls us to pick up our crosses to give our lives for others and to follow Him. So we actually have to hear James' words, for human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. He goes on, therefore, in verse 21, ridding yourselves of all moral filth, And the evil that is so prevalent, humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Rid yourselves of all moral filth and that so prevalent evil. The the Greek there for rid yourself actually means to take off, like you would take off a garment. And in context, it's this word of great hope. And it would instantly remind those hearing or reading James of their own baptism. Jesus says that our angry, evil speech bubbles up from the evil that's lurking, the evil and the ugly that's lurking in our hearts. We need a heart transplant. 
Yet we're also told that we can take off the evil and ugly the same way someone can strip off muddy clothes. How can both of those be true? Well, the secret lies in baptism. This is no longer our practice, but in the ancient church, baptism, Christian baptism, had this another little ritual attached to it. You would show up to baptism in old clothes, in an outfit that maybe most represented who you were before meeting Jesus. And as you approached the waters of baptism, you would take off that whole getup and you'd leave it in a pile beside the flowing water. Now, I don't know how this works, but I think strip down to your skivvies or their, your bathing suit, you would then take the plunge. A fellow believer would immerse you beneath the water, baptizing you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and having been metaphorically buried with Christ in baptism. You emerge dripping wet and ready to walk in newness of life. You step out of the water and someone would hand you a new outfit of brilliant white clothes. And your old garment would be left there beside the water, never to be picked up or put on again. Paul wrote to the Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Because of what Jesus has done for us, we can have a break with the old and become new. And He doesn't seem to seek to reform our old wicked hearts he gives us the opportunity to be reborn with a new heart that is tuned to His leadership. And what's more, He implants in us His Holy Spirit, that victorious life and power of Christ which enables us to both understand His way and grants us the ability to walk in it. He changes our hearts when we put our trust in Jesus, when we are baptized into His life. And He empowers us to partner with the work of transformation that God's Spirit is working in us and through us. And because of that, we can heed James's call to rid ourselves of the evil and the ugly. Because we're participating in the change that God is already bringing about in our lives. And James tells us to humbly receive the implanted Word. It's his favorite picture of our salvation in Jesus. And it illuminates for us and explains how we experience God's salvation worked out in our hearts, in our lives, in our world. And he's drawing upon two different teachings. The first came from the prophet Jeremiah where he talked about a new covenant that would be put in the heart of God's people because they couldn't hold to the Old Covenant. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. For I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sins. See, God's ancient people had possessed God's Word. They had received His instruction of how to live well and how to be a blessing in this world. 
But knowledge is not enough if you don't have the will or the power to walk in it. And so he says, I'm going to implant, I'm going to give you a new heart and a new spirit. That's what Jesus came to do. And then Jesus himself speaks. He says, I am a sower planting seed, the word of the gospel in men and women's hearts. And he's sowing seeds of divine power and supernatural change that can bring forth life in us and can nourish others with its fruit. And Moose says, God plants this within his people, making it a permanent, inseparable part of the believer, a guiding and commanding presence within. So this is what Jesus has done. He's come to give us a new heart and to implant the gospel in it and to give us the power of the Holy Spirit so that we might know this change and this power and this transformation. And so James picks up the thread where Jesus left off and he says, okay, to know this, you have to humbly receive the Word. You need to be open to Jesus' new instruction and the Holy Spirit's new power at work in your life. Well, how do we humbly receive? Well, to humbly receive the Word, we must hear the Word. That's why we're prompted to ask for God's wisdom. That's why we read and study and meditate upon Scripture. It's why we seek God in prayer and stillness in Christian community. We're eager to hear His guidance and to know His presence. So to humbly receive the Word, we must hear the Word. And to truly hear the Word, we must do the Word. We must be obedient to it. We must trust in it. We must start to put it into practice. Because James says, hearing requires doing, or it's not receiving. He ends with this, but be doers of the Word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like someone looking at his own face in a mirror. He looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who works. And this person will be blessed in what he does. So we're going to end there, and I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. But just to review these two, three-part charges that James gives to us. He says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. Why? Because human anger does not accomplish God's good and right purposes. Then he says, humbly receive the implanted word, hear it and do it. Why? Because it's able to save your souls and you will be blessed if you partner with the power of God's Holy Spirit and God's gospel work in your life. So let's heed that this week. Dear God, Lord, cultivate the soil of our hearts. God, we can't reform ourselves. We can't even govern our own hearts and our mouths, God, but you say that we can have a break with our past and we can be made new if we only trust in you. We trust in your power to cover our sins. We acknowledge our need for your rescue and we submit ourselves to your life being worked out in us. May we be quick 
to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. But even more so, may we humbly receive that good news, that word of life. May we hear it and may we do it. Because we want to experience that salvation that you've promised, that newness of life, that break of the power of evil, sin, and death. So God, we receive and we follow. In Jesus' name, amen.